Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Conversations podcast. I'm Dr Louise Tuckwiller, Senior CMO working in two southern regional hospitals. The aim of this podcast is to review emergency topics with a rural and regional perspective. The opinions expressed are for general education encourage everyone to check their local guidelines and those of the New South Wales Emergency Care Institute. Okay, so I'm fortunate to have with me today Dr Alice White, a consultant anaesthetist working in Sydney and rural New South Wales. So thanks for so much for coming today, Alice. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Now, do you mind, but just before we get started, if you could just tell me a bit about yourself and your role? Sure, yes. I'm a specialist anaesthetist who actually grew up in Maria and went to Maria High. So it's always been in my interest to come back here and work. It just took a long time to finish training and managed to actually get back here. But I'm very happy to be back here now. And I've been coming to Maria now for almost three years um, on a pretty ad hoc basis, but at, at best, maybe once a month. And uh, it's great. So I usually work in Sydney, uh, mostly as a cardiothoracic anaesthetist uh, at RPA and Prince of Wales Hospitals and at a few other private hospitals in Sydney as well. So I guess my special interests are cardiothoracic anesthesia and cardiopulmonary bypass and echocardiography as well. But when I'm here, I do everything. And obviously, while you're in a place like Maria, you help out both in theatres, in the emergency department, on the wards, and also in maternity. So you kind of just by default become a bit of a jack of all trades while you're down here. During my time in training, I actually did six months in care flight as well. So that was a very heavy focus on things like emergency intubations and post-intubation care and things like that. So I feel like I haven't done that for a little while, but we can draw on some of that experience hopefully uh, today and have some useful things to talk about. Oh, that's great. And we we love having you down here. It's just been fantastic having you come for the last couple of, you know, three years. So, all right, look, we'll begin with a case. So we have a 65-year-old male with a history of obesity, type 2 diabetes, and CCF, who presents with a three-day history of fever, abdominal pain, and vomiting. He's a temperature of 38.8, a heart rate of 135, a blood pressure of 90 on 50, and saturations 88% on 10 litres via Hudson mask. Now, Dr. White, what could happen to this patient if we did an immediate RSI with standard doses of induction agents? Uh, well, first of all, this is actually a pretty classic Maria ED patient. So this is a really good patient to have a pretty good grasp on about what we're going to do. From the get-go, I don't think I'd be up for doing an immediate RSI without a little bit of snazzying up of this patient around the edges first. Mm. So the things that I guess I would like to, um, to think about for this patient is if there was anything we could do to sort of fix up his situation a bit before we decided to push on with an RSI and also before we decide to push on with an RSI, unless he's absolutely about to arrest, we'll probably need to think about what our plan is going to be um, beyond that um, mm-hmm. in terms of disposition or what we think is going to happen to this guy. So if there was anything that we could fix up uh, to maybe make this a slightly safer um, undertaking, then it would be good if we did that. So I guess um, I'd be thinking about the things that he has as a chronic problems, his obesity in particular, and which could be helped a bit by positioning, and his CCF. And obviously, he's probably got this big distended abdomen and maybe there's other issues going on there too. 
um, and see if we could just kind of sort those out a little bit first, make sure it wasn't in pulmonary edema, which is making things worse, um, and then think about what we're going to do um, in terms of getting this guy off to sleep and managing his airway. If we were to do an immediate RSI on this guy immediately with standard doses of induction drugs that I would use for a normal healthy person in theatre, I think uh, we would very shortly find ourselves in a bit of hemodynamic compromise. It, he's clearly sick, clearly septic. Um, he's got signs of sepsis and I think he would respond very poorly to a heavy-handed induction of anesthesia at this point. So. We'd certainly need to think about scaling that back a bit and doing a more sort of sympathetic induction would be the most important things. But a bit of pre-induction resus might not go astray here. Yeah, no, that's great. And actually the aim of this podcast is to review our approach to this sort of patient who does require resuscitation prior to intubation and try and avoid us having a patient arrest during this period. Now, we actually won't be discussing the variations we require for a patient with or, you know, with or suspected of having COVID just for this, this discussion today. What are the indications for intubating a patient in general, if you're thinking about that? So, there's a few sort of ways you can think about it. I guess if most commonly is if the patient is currently unable to protect their own airway or keep their own airway open. So if they're very obtunded for whatever reason, they've been retaining CO2, they're very drowsy, they've taken an overdose, they've got a head injury, or if we're going to do something to them that's going to render them in that situation. And that's most commonly uh, what happens in theatre. We need to get the patient off to sleep to have an operation. Um, and so while they're asleep, obviously um, their airway needs to be protected. But in this kind of situation, it's usually because for whatever reason, um, they're not able to protect and manage their own airway. Other reasons, which probably the next most common is if the patient is clearly failing from a respiratory point of view. So if this patient is demonstrating features of respiratory failure, which we can talk about later, but basically it's the numbers on the gas and the SATs and evidence of sort of um, a pulmonary problem going on, um, then that's an indication to be intubated. If the patient needs is tiring, we need to minimise the oxygen consumption um, and maximise oxygen delivery to this patient. So if they're very septic uh, and they've just run out of steam, they've been breathing like this at a respirator of 30 for a day now and they're just absolutely exhausted, then it's probably better for us to just take over. And then there's a few other littler things that are more common, obviously, in the sort of out-of-theatre situation. And those are things like uh, if we needed to render the patient unconscious because we were trying to terminate a seizure, if the patient had had a head injury and we were trying to very tightly control the physiology, most notably um, the CO2, if the patient had had some kind of um, toxic ingestion that meant that we really needed to quite aggressively manage their physiology. Say, for example, they were hypothermic. It was a hypothermic child from being left in a car or it was a hypothermic adult from malignant hypothermia or like a serotonin syndrome or something like that, then we might um, consider intubating the patient. And then finally, and this probably comes into play quite a lot in Maria actually, mm. uh, is if the patient is going to be moved somewhere else, if they've got a very painful injury and you have to pack them up and stick them in a helicopter and send them to Canberra, it's sometimes more humane, basically, um, to have the patient off to sleep for that 
journey. If the patient is, you're a bit concerned that they might be a bit much of a hand, bit of a handful uh, in the air, for example, if they're psychotic, if they've taken an overdose, if you really just don't trust them, mm. then that's probably also an indication for an intubation. Any patient that I ever picked up from the jail during care flight went off to sleep before I put them in the helicopter. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. So, <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great overview. And, look, I suppose I thinking of some of the respiratory causes, I, I sometimes do like to think along the lines of, I mean, it can cross over, but basically whether we've got a failure of, you know, oxygenation, prim- ox- oxygenation primarily or type 1 respiratory failure which can be reflected by the arterial saturations or the PaO2 and a, or a failure of ventilation or type 2 respiratory failure, which is sometimes reflected you know, by the end tidal CO2 or the CO2 on the gas. Mm. Can you sort of comment on how you know, this might affect our management in trying to optimise optimize patients prior to intubation? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it, it's important to make the distinction between the two types of respiratory failure. And basically, type 1 respiratory failure is just a primary failure of oxygenation. And some people cut that off as a PaO2 of less than 60 on mm-hmm. the arterial blood gas. And type 2 respiratory failure is a failure of oxygenation with an associated failure of carbon dioxide clearance. So there'll be a raised carbon dioxide on the gas as well, which is usually greater than 50. If the patient has COPD and they've always got a high CO2, then you might also see um, a decrease in the pH below 7.3 as well. I mean, when you're faced with the pointy end of someone with respiratory failure, I guess it doesn't matter that much. If they need to be intubated, they need to be intubated. But certainly in the things that you can do to improve the situation before that, then there's probably it's probably worth noting the distinctions. So for type 1 respiratory failure, basically you're just not able to get adequate oxygen either into your alveoli or across the alveoli and into the gas, into the um, blood. And those are usually because of problems at the diffusing interface. So that's things like a shunt or VQ mismatch, uh, the lungs being full of, and the reason why you might have those situations is that lungs is full of pus or vomit or ARDS fluid or pulmonary edema, things like that, burns perhaps. In hypercapnic respiratory failure, type 2 respiratory failure, CO2 is actually much more diffusible across a membrane than oxygen. It's like 20 times more diffusible. So it's usually unlikely that there's a problem getting it across the um, – it can happen, but usually it's not due to a problem getting across the diffusion membrane. It's due to a problem with your level of ventilation, and that's more with things like breathing failure. So um, the patient is very weak. So you can progress probably from type 1 respiratory failure to type 2 if you've been breathing super hard all this time and now you're just absolutely knackered and you just can't maintain that level of ventilation anymore. Or if there's other reasons, you have um, taken an opioid overdose and you just don't have that respiratory drive. Um, If you're very obese, if you're asleep and you've got an obstructed airway and you're snoring or you're partially anaesthetized, those are sort of things that would decrease the level of ventilation. Um, Traumatic injuries, rib fractures and things like that, that would alter the mechanics as well is probably important. So in this patient, I would that there's probably an element of type 2 respiratory failure um, because he's pretty big and it sounds like he's been working pretty hard for a while and he's probably starting to run out of steam. 
So this is the kind of guy who we could at least try to position him well and ventilate him kind of well, reverse anything that might be making him very sort of sleepy or weaker if there was anything on board, um, and then think about what to do. Okay, that's great. Now, it's mandated that with the rare exception of a patient requiring an immediate intubation, such as, you know, say, for instance, an anaphylaxis with airway obstruction, that we actually complete an airway checklist. Now, LHD has one and the Emergency Care Institute of New South Wales also has a checklist that can be used. So initially, we should call for help if required and allocate our roles and ensure all our monitoring, including end tidal CO2, is attached. And then we need to check our equipment, which includes a BVM with a filter and a peep valve, nasal prong oxygen, suction, adjuncts, including two nasopharyngeals and Gadels, two working laryngoscopes, video laryngoscope, two ETTs with the cuffs checked, bougie stylet, 10 mil syringe, a tube tie and an LMA. And we just need to ensure that our ventilator has been checked and is ready to go. So do you have any comments about any of this equipment and how we prepare it? No, other than that, I wholeheartedly agree about going through a checklist uh, before you embark on this kind of a procedure. It's the sort of thing where you only get one good chance at doing it properly and you certainly do not want to find out that you were underprepared once you've kind of already taken the plane off. I totally agree with all of this equipment. Something I would point out is Video laryngoscopes are fantastic and I would highly recommend using one for any kind of intubation like this. Make sure it's on. We did an emergency intubation in theatre on Friday night and there was no battery inside the video laryngoscope (laughs) and then it wouldn't turn on. If the patient has got any kind of blood in the airway, it basically renders your video laryngoscope completely useless unless you can get all of that blood out. Same goes if they vomit during the time covers the camera and there's nothing to be gained from that then Um, so make sure that you've got a good backup like a a laryngoscope with a good light with a good battery that's going to definitely shine a light down those cords Um, and think about I guess the LMAs that you would want to it ideally would be an LMA you've actually put in before Mm -hmm. Um, I know that the ambulance people all use eye gels and I think that's what I've seen uh, here in Maria ED as well. So at least if we're all kind of on the same page about using those, it's it's um, easier if everyone's accustomed to the same equipment. If there's something that you specifically think is going to be really useful for this particular case, then make it very clear to whoever's your airway assistant that that's what you want. Because the last thing you want is for someone to wander off mid-RSI to go find you some obscure thing and abandon you in your time of need. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, they're all great, great points. So um, so we'll now move on to patient preparation. Now, how do you recommend we optimise our patient's position? Mm, I can't recommend this enough, honestly. It is the most useful thing you can do to make sure that this goes well. So down in theatre, we have a uh, like a foam ramp for our obese patients, which is called the Oxford Pillow. And it is such a lifesaver. It can, it's really excellent because what you're trying to achieve is basically that the, the, the suprasternal notch and the sternum are kind of even. 
Um, the last thing you want is these patients kind of down in a hammock of a bed and you're know, rustling around trying to sort of get down low enough to see the cords once you've finally got a laryngoscope in their mouth. So you want really like to full-on achieve the sniffing the morning air position and it can be difficult in these patients. You're not doing it on a hard operating table. So often they really do sink down into the mm. bed. So if they have a those puffy air mattresses on, turn that off immediately. Try, if you don't have a ramp, try and fashion a similar sort of arrangement. So usually um, a stack of folded up blankets yep. is a good start. Get them right under the patient's shoulders um, and then the pillow as well. The nurses in in theatre all hate it when I do this, but I often, just for a last-minute addition, stick a box of gloves right under the patient's head too, um, mm. which is often just seems to be the perfect amount of head raise to ensure that your, your tragus and your sternal notch are kind of going to be equal then. Once you've got that done, you would be astonished how much better it is actually to try and bag the patient as well or even just open up the airway so they're kind of pre-oxygenating themselves in um, a more efficient fashion. It gets that big tummy off the bottom of the lungs. It's really helpful. So mm-hmm. I can't I can't um, emphasize enough how important um, positioning is. And then also the bed, the everything should be done for you. Now is the time to be a complete surgeon, if you like. Um, have the bed at your height. <laughs> Just make it as easy as you can. Yeah. Um, the other thing I was going to say was this patient, or we might be getting onto this in a second, but this patient has a beard, I think. Yes, yes, we're going to talk about that as well. So, um, okay. Or do you want me to wait and talk about that? Or oh no, that's great. I, the only other thing I would sort of say, I suppose, from an ED perspective with a patient um, preparation, is I always try and make insist that the patient is pulled up to the top of the bed, even if it means yes. pulling the hassle yes. to move them. Because I find if you are halfway down the bed, you half, you know, you're losing your, you know, your preparation. And and I try and get the bed if I can get reverse Trendelenburg about 20 to 30 degrees, because we don't have those formed yes. ramps. So I find that can help as well. But Absolutely. And now's the time to be particular. <laughs> Yeah, once you get started, it's it makes it so much more difficult. But yeah, so he does have a beard and is a bee. So how might this affect our preparation? So this is sort of a point now. Before you give any drugs or try to do bagging or anything like that, you really need to think about how difficult this beard is going to make um, the situation, and it can genuinely make it pretty difficult, particularly for bagging a patient. Yeah. So this guy would obviously be headed for an RSI because of the abdominal sort of situation. He's a pretty high risk, I would say, of aspirating on induction. Yeah. But if you were to find yourself in a bit of trouble, you may want to be able to bag this guy too. Mm-hmm. Um, it's honestly, it's near on impossible to do it with. It depends how bushy the beard is, I guess. But if it's mm-hmm. a big, big one, it can be incredibly difficult. And there's different things that people do to try and make that easier for themselves quite frankly I would tell the patient that the beard is going and shave it off just okay. get those clippers out and just get rid of it because it's I mean it's up to them sort of I guess but that is a significant impediment to being able to bag that patient well and you can just get out those clippers that you use to shave that when you put in a cannula and off it comes Great idea. People do other things. 
They put yeah. big tegaderms all over the beard to try and get a seal with the mask. Well, they put KY jelly. The one time I tried to use KY jelly, I got it all over my hands. It was so slippery. I couldn't hold on to the patient's face anyway. It was a disaster. Mm. It didn't really help with the seal. I don't find that particularly helpful. Maybe some people are better at it than me, but my number one trick is to just get rid of it and then that problem is removed. Excellent. That sounds like a great option. So in terms of pre-oxygenating prior to intubation, what options do we have for that? Yeah, so, I mean, it depends how sort of desperate your patient is at the time. Like if you, this guy is not doing well, obviously. He's sat to 88. Um, He's really struggling. So I don't think you're going to get much better off than that with this particular oxygen delivery system, which I think is the Hudson mask. Hmm. Um, He probably really does need a bit of positive pressure um, to help him with pre-oxygenation. So the options available to us would be to pop him on um, some high-flow nasal prongs. Mm -hmm. The new generation high-flow nasal prongs are such that you can actually put a bag a valve mask over the top of those. They're quite flat. The nasal cannula bit is quite flat and you can actually still get a decent seal with those. I don't Mm. know if we have those new generation ones at Maruya. That would be my, probably be my ideal. Otherwise you can um, just bag mask him with your Liddell bag and a peep valve. Yep. which would also be um, a very good option and also provides you with the reassuring sort of information that you can make a seal and therefore you're probably going to be able to bag him later, which is like a nice sort of safety net to have in the back of your head as well. Otherwise, yep. various other oxygen delivery mechanisms, you could try a non-rebreather mask, but I'd be looking for a little bit of peep in this guy. Yeah, no, that sounds great. And how do we try and determine if we have adequately pre-oxygenated the patient? Yes. So in theatre, it's very easy because our um, gas sampling line is able to identify end tidal oxygen and we would aim for an end tidal oxygen of, say, 80 or if we were very worried, 90 even, Mm -hmm. um, which means you've really denitrogenated the functional residual capacity of the lung. So you've basically replaced everything in there with Mm -hmm. oxygen. And that is a really nice depot of safety, I guess, Mm. uh, to have there to to use while you're sort of proceeding with your intubation. I'm not sure on the monitors in ED if you can see end tidal oxygenation. No, we can't. So in that case, I guess you just do your best. You maybe make sure that you had a good seal. If you had a good seal with like decent um, end tidal CO2 trace, then maybe if you just pre-oxygenated the patient for a few minutes on 100% oxygen, um, then you could be at least reassured that 100% oxygen was actually going into the lungs, provided you had a good CO2 trace, and then just kind of hope that that had replaced enough nitrogen. Yeah. No, if I was doing right. something, if it was really urgent, like if it was a GA Caesar patient and you absolutely just don't have any time, I stick the mask on the patient and just tell them to take 10 of their biggest breaths while I'm pushing in the drugs, really. And that's the best you can do in that situation. But yeah, no, I think you're right. I think both using the end title to see that they're actually getting some of that 100% oxygen is useful. And I agree, like having, you know, worked in theatres as well, I find sometimes, actually, I can ask this patient to take some big breaths because they're still conscious. And that's often, as you say, a good option mm. to fill their lungs up. So, um, no, that's excellent. Excellent.
in a patient such as this, we really need to ensure that we have our hemodynamics optimised. So we need to have two yeah. good IV cannulas and fluids on a pump set. How would you try and get this guy optimised prior to intubation with him being sort of tachycardic and hypotensive? Yeah, so you kind of, you've got a few conflicting priorities here too, I guess. You, there's a few different reasons why he could be tachypneic and a bit hypoxic. I think most obviously is the fact that he's clearly got some kind of intra-abdominal problem going on. So he's got a distended abdomen. Um, he might be having trouble breathing sort of against that, the way a pregnant lady is a bit breathless as well. Mm. Um, he's got a temperature of 38.8, so his oxygen demand is quite high compared to his oxygen supply. He's probably tiring because he doesn't sound like the fittest guy. He's got a history of type 2 diabetes, so uh, metabolically he could have a situation that's driving um, a uh, hyperventilation situation as well. So I wouldn't mind seeing a gas before this just to see if there's anything we could fix in that respect as well. In terms of fluid and things, like he's obviously septic and it would probably be helpful to give a small fluid bolus. He's got CCF and we don't know how bad that is, but it would be very unhelpful to tip him into pulmonary edema and make this whole situation a lot worse. So ideally, you would have a chest X-ray before uh, you proceeded with this. I guess if that's not possible and someone in the department felt comfortable doing an E-fast, you could have a quick look um, just at the lungs in terms of looking for um, the curly B lines and consolidation and things like that, which mm. might suggest to you that they're a bit wet in the lungs too. Mm. Um, and then you might be a bit more inclined to be a bit circumspect about the fluid that you were giving. But in someone who is very dehydrated, you really can have a precipitous downfall in hemodynamics when you induce anesthesia. So it would be definitely good to know if there was room for a bit of IV fluid there before you proceeded. And what about sort of push dose presses and an infusion? Would you be um, mm. looking at those? So I would there's an absolutely no way you're going to induce anesthesia in this patient without requiring some kind of presses. That seems clear to me. So my go-to presser in this situation is just to use metaraminol. Yep. Um, it's something that we're all very familiar with and very comfortable with. Um, it's I would feel okay about just giving little bolus doses while I was doing the intubation and then sort of seeing how it went. If it was obvious very early on that the patient was not going to do well hemodynamically, then I would start an infusion. Mm. Probably started at like 20 mils an hour. And if it was, if that was an ongoing problem, then I'd probably um, consider putting in a central line and starting some noradrenaline. This guy yeah. is septic, so clearly that's an issue. Yeah. Um, I don't know how bad his cardiac function is to have left him with this history of CCF, but whenever I'm anxious about a patient, which after hours at Maruya is actually reasonably common, I make up some very dilute adrenaline, 10 mics per mil. Mm -hmm. uh, and if they really, really tank after induction, then I, I often would give just 10 mics um, as a little bolus just to get things back on track. Yeah, that's great. So, yeah, I find I just, like yourself, I'll get one of the one in 10,000 adrenalines. I'll take a mil out and make it up to 10 mils to get that 10 mics per mil. Is that how you do it? Yeah, that's absolutely how I do it. And anyone who knows me knows if they see me do that, that I'm a bit worried. Okay. Uh, and often you don't use it, but it's very nice to have. 
And in just as an aside, if you go back to theatre in the middle of the night with a cardiac patient who's having a tamponade, basically that's all I give them for induction. A tiny bit of adrenaline and the most minuscule bit of propofol. Not that we're doing those kind of patients here, but it's just such a good get out of jail. Okay. Oh, that's great. And I suppose, you know, if you've got time and it doesn't take too long, an arterial line could be useful in this guy. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. If you had time, um, if you had a few extra people around, if it was like the daytime and not 2am, that would be really helpful because you just have more real-time information. And someone who's obese and sweaty and shivering, the non-invasive can often be a bit unreliable. Mm. Um, and at best you're only getting a reading every one minute and things have often really started to slide downhill within one minute absolutely now so this guy and in other cases we do predict a potential difficult airway what else could we do to prepare to manage this well you really need to do a proper airway assessment at this point. Yep. Assess whether you think this patient's going to be difficult to bag mask ventilate. Mm-hmm. Assess whether you think it's going to be difficult to intubate and assess as a bit of a kind of backup plan situation. Assess if you think it's going to be hard to get in an LMA and heaven forbid, have a quick look at the front of the neck, I suppose, to see if you think it's going to be difficult to achieve a surgical airway. Yep. But leaving the surgical airway and probably even the LMA out for now there's lots of easy um, mnemonics to think about in terms of assessing airways the I guess the most common one is lemon for assessing um, intubation uh, difficulty and mostly that can come down to just having a look at some distances so the distance between the incisors the distance between the thiohyoid and then the distance um, for the um, temporomandibular distance as well sorry the thiomandibular distance are just useful numbers to sort of suggest to you at least you can open the patient's mouth um, and the distance between where you're where you're putting the laryngoscope through the mouth and then where your cords are going to be is kind of going to be in a straight line. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, check that there's not some external thing. There's not a big massive blur of mouth cancer. Um, the neck actually moves. It's not fixed in some horrible forward flexion like a kyphotic old lady or they've had their C-spine fused a number of times. Unfortunately for this patient, I guess obesity is um, something also to have a look at. Uh, and then the Mal and Patty score as well. And also never forget, patients might have dentures and mm. you can take them out and that's so helpful. Yeah. And then in terms of the difficult bag mask, we kind of went over that already. Beard, being fat, having a history of sleep apnea and snoring, which means obviously they're prone um, to obstructing their airway anyway. Although it's very helpful for intubation, having no teeth actually makes things a bit harder for bagging because there's kind of nothing to, to create a seal with. Yes. Um, so, yeah, those would be the things I'd be looking at. Oh, that's great. So now the ECI checklist includes a list of our rescue devices to have at hand, including an appropriate size LMA, difficult airway trolley and surgical airway kit located. Now, it's very important that we verbalise our airway plan to the team. For this patient, could you just give an example of an airway plan that you might use? Yeah, I think for this patient, what I would do is uh, he is quite clearly, I mean, at risk of an aspiration. Like he is a classic rapid sequence induction patient. He's got a big distended abdomen. We don't know what's going on. He's been vomiting. He's already 
asking for an aspiration, I think. And in terms of his other problems, like really what we want to do is just secure an airway as fast as possible. Yeah. Um, he's probably going to be difficult to bag anyway, even if he didn't have the abdominal problems. So my plan would really be optimise everything that I could, get him really well positioned, think about what drugs I would like to use, mm. um, including rescue drugs and presses and kind of cardiac arrest drugs too. Probably more um, important if you're intubating a child to think about the rescue doses because it's very difficult to calculate doses based on weight and things when you're things are going very badly and you're under pressure. And then consider how we're going to deliver pre-oxygenation. It's not really an issue in this situation, but you think about um, protecting the C-spine. If it was, say, if it was a trauma, mm-hmm. you need an extra person for that to provide um, in manual inline stabilisation. Think about then, um, so drugs and then paralysis and induction, so sort of two separate things, and pressors. Think about how we're going to prove that we've got the tube down. Um, yep. and convince ourselves and really the only gold standard is to have an entitled co2 yeah um and then there's two other things think about if you want to have someone to do cryphoid pressure mm-hmm. it's a kind of controversial thing especially in emergency department i would say the only two aspirations i've had in these sort of circumstances have both occurred when someone has removed the cryphoid pressure okay. um, and up has come a fountain of either blood or vomit so I actually personally am pretty pro-cricoid, but I know that there's a lot of pro and con about that. So that's kind of up to you, I guess. Um, and then we need to think about post-intubation management. It's very tempting to just get on with it and bung a tube down and go for it, but it then also kind of leaves you a bit in the lurch when you realise, oh, great, we've got this patient off the sleeve. There's no sedation drawn up. There's The ventilator's not set. No one knows where how to tie the tube in, those kind of things. So... Having a bit of think about the pre-intubation checklist and then what you're going to do after is super important. Absolutely. No, that's that's really helpful. So we might have a little chat about some of the medications and if then yeah. talking about some more airway plans. So are there instances in which you'd use a pre-medication prior to induction? Yes, I guess so. Like I would often use some opiates. It's probably really as part of my induction, but a little bit before the induction began, I guess, particularly if the patient had some sort of situation where you really didn't want a big sympathetic surge when you intubated the patient. So, for example, if they had a head injury or maybe if they had an aortic dissection, then I would definitely be trying to blunt that um, that sympathetic surge. If the patient is extremely combative for many reasons, they've taken an overdose, they've got a head injury, they're really hypoxic and they're just going a bit crazy. You need to do something, I guess, to get them under control enough to be able to pre-oxygenate safely Mm. um, because I'd rather give the patient a bit of a pre-med and be able to know that I was pre-oxygenating them well before I got them off to sleep, particularly if they were combative or whatever because they're a bit hypoxic. And what I would tend to use in that situation is, is a very small dose of ketamine. Yes, yep. Yeah, no, yeah, fair enough. Just to kind of smooth the waters. In other than that, I don't usually use many other things, but certainly sometimes people might consider using atropine or glycopyrrolate if there was really bad secretions and things like that. Okay, and for the one where you don't want the surge in the blood pressure, I tend to use um, some fentanyl prior. Is that would that be your choice? Yeah, hundred percent. Unless they're like hemodynamically about to fall off a cliff. 
mm. I would give 100 mics of fentanyl or a milligram of alfentanyl, but that's probably more common in theatre and fentanyl is everywhere and it's very easy to come across in ED and uh, most importantly, it comes in a big pre-made syringe of, and you can use it after intubation to keep the patient asleep. Yeah, yeah, no, I find that a really useful thing to have on hand. So so what um, induction and paralytic agents do you tend to use in the unwell patient who might decompensate on induction and intubation? Yeah, I honestly think the best drug to use is a drug that you know how to use, mm-hmm. which sounds stupid, I guess, but I mean, just something that you're familiar with. Yeah. Um, for example, I've never used thiopentone ever once in my whole life. Mm. I wouldn't know what to give and I could look up the dose, but I don't know if that's massive and if mm. that would immediately send someone crashing through the floor. I, I don't know. I've never used it. So mm. I would use ketamine or I would use propofol in a very, very considered sympathetic way. Okay. The other thing is if someone is really shocked, you have to consider that their sort of cardiac circulation time is long. Um, and so there's it's sometimes it takes a bit longer for the drugs to get up to the brain if things are going really badly. Like if they're in um, cardiogenic shock, then obviously things aren't just shooting around the circulation straight to the brain and it might take a little bit longer for them to get to sleep, particularly with old people. But I don't think that ever means just bunging a massive dose. I think in someone who, say, a young, healthy person who is at risk of aspiration but is probably not at that much risk of cardiovascular collapse, that Mm. is the situation to give a good going dose so that you just know you're going to get them off to sleep and you can paralyze it straight away. But in a patient like this, I'd just give a sympathetic dose of whatever induction agent I was familiar with, which in my case would probably still be propofol, Mm -hmm. um, and then rapidly follow up with a very generous intubating dose of muscle relaxant yeah the muscle relaxant that oh sorry no so i think rock rock uranium is probably what we tend to i think a lot of people yeah so i think so too and i mean traditionally sucks has been very popular because it doesn't last for that long and the thought is that if you can't intubate the patient the the sucks will wear off and they'll start breathing but i feel like if the patient needs an rsi they need an rsi if you have committed to establishing an airway in ed then it's for a reason and you kind of need to proceed. Um, There's nothing to be gained by trying to intubate a partially paralysed patient. That's just asking for trouble and it's making your job a lot worse. Mm -hmm. Um, So I agree. I would use rocuronium. It's what all of the um, retrieval services and emergency departments, unless there's some massive contraindication like anaphylaxis, um, Mm -hmm. would use. And you just need to make sure that you give a good solid dose. So um, the suggestion is 1.2 milligrams per kilogram, but in Kefla, they up that, I think, to 1.5 because mm. you often underestimate what you think the patient weighs too. And it feels insane drawing up rock in a 20 mil syringe, but the last thing you want is for the patient to be partially paralysed. So, Yeah. Oh, no, they're great points. Now we spoke about presses and we were saying needing the post-intubation sedation, getting that ready prior to intubation. Do you have any sort of particular ones that you think are best, you know, say in our scenario where we're packing them up for the helicopter to use for the post-intubation? Again, I don't think it matters, honestly. I just think 
that you need to make sure it's happening. So mm. you've just given this patient an enormous dose of rocuronium, which is going to last way longer than the intubation dose of whatever induction agent you used. Mm. Um, so at some point, the patient is going to be paralyzed without being particularly sedated if you don't sort of follow that up with some ongoing sedation. And it's it, it's not at all uncommon to come down to ED to find a patient that's clearly paralyzed and not asleep. And it's one of my worst nightmares that that would happen to a patient of mine. So I'm not saying that you often need to use a lot, but certainly it's something that needs to be considered. So uh, usually I would just run some opiates. So the fentanyl, the giant fentanyl syringe that you got out to give a bit of pre-med can now be connected to the drip and run it whatever you think is appropriate. And usually I would just run a bit of propofol at this point in time as well. If it's obvious that this is the kind of patient that's not getting woken up anytime soon, then it really doesn't matter what you're running. You could run midazolam and morphine, which is pretty old school. But if obviously the patient's not getting woken up anytime soon, it doesn't really matter. If the patient's very, very sketchy hemodynamics-wise, you might consider just using little boluses of ketamine until you can establish central venous access and have some norad running and then be able to run something a bit more um, robust for sedation. Yeah, no, that, that's fantastic. The ECI airway checklist includes difficult airway and can't intubate, can't oxygenate plans. Um, so they tend to have for plan A the use of a video laryngoscope or direct laryngoscopy and advise the use of a bougie for all of these. What can we do if we're unable to get a good view with our initial attempt? Mm. So with your very initial attempt, you're there now. So I would ask my assistant to do, or I'd probably do it myself and then, or put their hand on the neck and then move it to where I thought was helpful. Um, a bit of external laryngeal manipulation is sometimes quite helpful. Yeah. If there's, if mouth is really dry or there's been a lot of secretions, often the epiglottis is just kind of a bit stuck and that's why you actually just can't see it yet. But pushing yeah. down on the throat can help with that. Other than that, just have a quick think about what you've done. So it's a very stressful situation and adrenaline is very high. Have you just stuck the laryngoscope down to the hilt and is it halfway down the patient's esophagus, which mm -hmm. is very common. Think about where you are, maybe pull back a little bit um, with the laryngoscope and see if you can see something that looks like anatomy come into view. After you've done that, you've probably been down there for a little while now. It's time to think about maybe coming out and giving it a little bit of thought about what you're going to do um, and then having a second attempt. So if you're going to come out, reconsider your positioning, mm -hmm. reconsider the fact that the pa is the patient fully paralysed um, because that can definitely um, hinder you with getting a good view. Uh, and then think about maybe do I actually need to give the patient a few breaths now as well? Um, of bag mass ventilation if, if I've been messing around for a little while down there. The last thing you want to do is keep hammering away um, with a rigid instrument down at the epiglottis and create airway trauma. Um, I would think about the things I could fix, so paralysis and position and things like that, and have another look or maybe consider having a look with a different instrument, like change to, um, to a traditional laryngoscope from my video laryngoscope, for example, mm. um, and have another look. 
if I can just see the bottom of chords and things like that, then that's fine. I'll just um, probably accept that view and use a bougie, um, mm. which we were going to use anyway. Um, if you genuinely can't see anything at that point, I think it's time to bail out and put down an LMA and then you've got a bit of breathing time to think about what to do. If you cannot ventilate with an LMA, then you're starting to get into sort of what are we going to do now territory. Okay. So, yeah, that's very much um, what what the ECI recommend abandoning if the SATs are less than 93 and reoxygenating before the next attempt. In terms of using, you know, other options such as LMA or your BVM or ultimately if you can't do anything, a surgical airway, do you have any tips on insertion of an LMA? Yes. You can never go wrong with having your assistant do a good, solid jaw thrust. If you don't really have an assistant who can help you or everyone's hands are a bit occupied, sometimes what I do, actually I often do this to insert the um, transesophageal echo, is basically to just grab the mandible in my hand and just pull it forward um, just to create a bit more space between the tongue and the back of the throat. I find it sometimes easier to turn it a bit on its side and then just as in like sort of put it so that it's facing the patient's shoulder as opposed to facing the patient's feet and then sort of do a little twist as I'm just going around the back of the tongue, which sometimes helps it just kind of clunk into place. But really opening up that space by um, jaw thrust is probably the most important thing. It would probably have been helpful to have assessed the patient beforehand to make sure their mouth would open enough to accommodate an LMA. because that sort of goes out the window as a rescue tool if the patient has some kind of problem anatomically that doesn't allow you to insert an LMA. Oh, no, they're great points. Um, Now, in an unwell patient such as this, um, you know, after they've had their induction and their paralytic agent, they're in the apneic period, I would actually try and do some bag mask ventilation carefully. Obviously, he's got a potentially full tummy, but for two reasons, one, to avoid the desaturations, and secondly, if I know I can bag them and I then I know I can ventilate even if I can't intubate. What what are your thoughts around hundred percent? I totally agree with that. It just apart from anything else, knowing that you can bag mask ventilate just puts this safety net under you that you didn't have before. Everyone can take a deep breath and then you can just do your intubation far more calmly, knowing that you can bail out and do a few breaths if you really can't see anything. And that is just such a better place to be in. And Mm. everybody knows that you don't perform well uh, sort of manually or mentally if you're under a huge amount of stress. And if you can take that down one notch, uh, that's so helpful. I really think that's worth the trade-off of um, a few puffs of air into the stomach, 100%. Yeah. And I find too often just grabbing the Goodells and popping it down just increases your chance of actually effectively bagging them at that stage as well. Absolutely. Yes. Oh, yeah. good. So, you know, we've tried all these things and say, for instance, we we haven't been able to successfully do any of the other ways of ventilating the patient. When would we progress to a surgical airway? I think if you're getting to the, so at any time, if you can't ventilate this patient and you haven't been able to achieve a view, then you really need to start thinking about it because this guy will go down SATS-wise really fast. He has very minimal reserve. His oxygen requirements at the moment are really high. He's very hypermetabolic. He probably doesn't have a great sort of FRC that's filled up with oxygen because he's got his big fat tummy. 
Mm. Um, if I'd had a few two looks, say, with laryngoscopy and I wasn't really able to achieve anything gas exchange-wise with an LMA and I didn't think I could bag, I couldn't bag, then I'd be telling someone to open the, the, the surgical airway kit. And at this point, if you have the luxury of having extra people, it's probably better to defer that task to whoever else is available to do airways because by this point you're very stressed. Mm. It's really scary being in this situation. Um, and you can continue to try and move some air in whatever way you can, bag masking or with an LMA, while that new person opens the kit and has a feel of the neck and just has a quick think about what they're going to do. If, unfortunately, you're the only person there, well, too bad, I guess, then at some point get someone to open the kit, have it all ready before you abandon the top of the airway and then come around to the side. Take a deep breath and think about what you're going to do before you do it and then just get on with it. I would recommend anyone who's going to ever find themselves in that situation to have given some thought to how they want to do it. So if they want to do scalpel finger bougie or if they want to try any other way, I, scalpel finger bougie has always seemed to me like the simplest thing to do and the least likely to create massive trauma and bleeding, which is going to very much hinder your chances of success. And I think the less steps, the less mental energy that is required to do something like this at this point in time, at a very, very stressful point in time, the easier you can make it for yourself, the better. So I've always thought, I've never had to do it, but I've always thought a uh, scalpel finger bridge is what I would do. Yeah, fantastic. And I did a podcast with Dr. Rory Ardley and we went through that and mental rehearsal and the whole thing. So that's really good to think about. Thank you so much. That's just been a great overview of, of intubating the unstable non-trauma patient using our airway checklist. Dr. White, do you have any final advice for the rural practitioner regarding cases such as this? I think try and get yourself to theatre as much as you can and feel familiar with all the different airway uh, tools that are available to you um, is really helpful. Um, or we're always super happy to have anyone who wants to come visit us in theatres anytime. Otherwise, be familiar with, obviously, with the equipment that you have. Mm. The last thing you want to do is be learning how to use something at this point in time. That's not a good idea. And then just make sure everyone is on the same page. And even though you can sometimes feel a bit dorky going through the checklist and allocating the roles, and it feels like you're rehashing the same stuff. It is, it's a really stressful time. People freak out and do weird stuff. You have to make sure you've got all your ducks in a row before you get on with it. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much again for your time today and all those wonderful insights and, you know, hints and, and all your experience there. I really do appreciate it so much and thank you again for working in our area we love having you here so it's great <laughs> i love coming here thank you for having me good on you all right thanks so much thank you. Thank you.